Welcome to Get Your World On, the podcast that helps you make sense of today's trends and global news in a way that is fun, understandable, and low in calories. You'll lose weight just listening. And it's promises like that which have led to Get Your World On being voted the most honest podcast for 103 years in a row. I'm your captain, Patrick, orbiting high above the Earth in my spaceship, Chocolate Love. Reporting the news to all creatures in the known universe. So grab a cup of coffee, forget the ungrateful kids, and listen to the latest transmission from the Starship. Get your world on and turn the ignorance off. I was minding my own business in 1863. I was killing lots of people when the aliens abducted me. Trapped in a spaceship and tortured every day, but I still look fly. Drinking down my tango ray. Alien fly girls were down with Pat. Alien overlords weren't down with that. They be doing the Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib, so I made a deal so I could get paid. I started a podcast to teach them stuff. News, global trends, and celebrities and fluff. They say I'll get my freedom for my weary bones as soon as you help me pay my student loans. 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 Word to your mother and your brother and your second cousin. Get Your World On, voted the most honest podcast for 103 years in a row, broadcasting to every planet, star, and moon in the universe, and now broadcasting to planet Earth, the only place in the universe that has not been listening to this podcast for the last 103 years, and a planet populated by people who think that their sun is big. I'm here to help you navigate this post-corona world for all of you infected little aardvarks that have a couple of really crappy years ahead of you to look forward to. Well, it's good to be back. I took a little bit of a break, um, as you may have noticed, uh, even though I'm in my spaceship, chocolate love. I was kind of getting tired of the heat. Um, you know, it's not so much that it's hot in the spaceship, but just that looking at all of you and and seeing all of my little earth friends, half of you in the hemisphere that's summertime, it was just, it was making me hot just looking at all of you. So I took a little bit of a vacation, which was really great. I wanted to get out of the heat. So I went to the, uh, icy dwarf planet Pluto. And, um, well, not really Pluto. Actually, Pluto has five moons. Charon, Styx, Nyx, Kerberos, and Hydra. So I actually decided to spend my vacation at Kerberos, since it's a little less touristy than the the other moons. Uh, Charon has become so built up that it's, you know, just unrecognizable now. And... uh, Well, Hydra, everybody goes to Hydra, especially this time of year. And then Styx, well, Styx used to be pretty nice, but now it has a nightlife that is, well, 
It's a little too extreme for my tastes, if you know what I mean. So I prefer to chill literally on the moon of Kerberos, just outside of uh, Pluto. So on today's broadcast, it's episode 1005, and we will be discussing, is the United States in unstoppable decline? Have we reached peak USA? Has the United States jumped the shark? Well, we'll take a look at that. Also, is the future going to be more like George Orwell's 1984 or Aldous Huxley's Brave New World? We'll be looking at the rise of the surveillance state and surveillance capitalism. You won't want to miss that. And... I'll be reading an excerpt from my new book, No Religion Required, a memoir of faith, doubt, chocolate milk, and untimely death. So sit back, relax, pull out your crystal meth, and enjoy the next few minutes of important vital information. So what will the future be like? That's a question that many of us wonder all the time. And it's something that we examine a lot on this podcast so that we can help all of you little aardvarks as you try and navigate your little tiny lives through a global pandemic. Remember when you were young and having to read two books in school that both predicted the future? One was called 1984. It was a classic written by George Orwell, which described a world of constant false information, of government interfering in every aspect of your life, living under a totalitarian system with unstoppable authoritarianism. It was a bleak, bleak world that kind of looked like the world of the Soviet Union and communism in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, all the way until about 1991. But there was another book that we often had to read, which was known as The Brave New World, which was written by Aldous Huxley. And it described a world where people were easily controlled by powers that be. They were controlled not through things that were dark and negative, like torture, but They were controlled by giving them pleasure, by giving them good access to drugs, by feeding them mass entertainment all the time, and by using technology that was led by the elites. And that kind of made everyone numb to what was real in life and made them stop demanding anything of the powers that be. People just kind of fell asleep into... Uh, a, a dream state as they were bombarded by superficiality? Well, the question that was often debated in the old days was, what is the world going to be like in the 2000s? Is it going to be more like George Orwell's 1984? Or is it going to be more like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World? Well, it's the year 2020. And my friends, it is looking like it is both. Guess what these countries have in common? Ethiopia, Kenya, 
Uganda, Mauritius, Mongolia, Singapore, Malaysia, Serbia, and Egypt. What a strange list, huh? There's some from Africa. There's some that are very underdeveloped. There's uh, one that's extremely developed, Singapore. Um, some are in Asia, some are in Europe, some are in Africa. What do these countries have in common? We could even add some South American countries like Ecuador or Bolivia. Or we could add another African country like Zambia. What do they all have in common? This is it. All of them are buying and using Chinese equipment designed to monitor and spy on their people at all times. They are buying technology which will allow their governments to identify people by their face using cameras that are put everywhere that can identify people by their walking style, by their posture, that can tell who they are even if they're wearing masks, and in some cases that can even recognize their individual protein construction schema. They can also identify that person's travel, who their friends are, and what they are reading, and what their political views are. So you may say, oh, okay, well, that sounds scary, but of course you can just uh, get offline, you know, just don't leave a digital footprint. Well, in some of these countries, if you do that, they can monitor how much you are streaming or not streaming, how much energy you're using in your house or not. And if you're not using the internet, then they know to put spies on you. They can monitor you. Why aren't you on the internet? That's the world that we are now living in. Now, let me tell you how bad this is getting. All you need, and in this podcast already, I have spoken over six minutes since you've been listening. All you need is six minutes of my voice to manipulate my voice to say anything. So even though I have not used a lot of words or the extent of my full vocabulary right now, all you need now is six minutes of me talking and you can make me declare that I'm the king of Antarctica or that I'm going to commit a murder in five minutes or that I'm going to rob a convenience store or that I belong to a uh, fascist group. Um, someone can do that now just using what I've just given you of my voice. Meanwhile, most of you are probably on Facebook and Facebook sells personal information to other companies about you. Each company they sell your information to gets 50,000 data points about you. 50,000. Now, there are two things that are happening right now in our world. One is the rise of social credit scoring, which is being led by China, and the rise of surveillance capitalism, which is capitalism that monitors you and all of your data in order to sell your data and market back to you. And authoritarian regimes can now prevent people from surprising the government with protests or rebellions or resistance movements. So a government can use it to retain power and control its people, or companies can use it 
to get you to buy their products or the products of their partner. In China, what they have done is created a social credit scoring system in which basically everything you do can maybe give you points or give you points deducted from your score. So the government is putting up, uh, I think, about uh, 400 million cameras. They're watching you all the time. And they will take points away from you if you break the law. If you don't pay your debts or you illegally cross the street, your point score will be lowered. And you may be prevented from going on your next vacation because you won't be able to buy an airplane ticket or a train ticket. They'll block you. Or you could lose your job. Or maybe you won't get bank loans. You could get points deducted in China for playing loud music. You could get points deducted for eating on the subway. You could even get points deducted for making a reservation at a restaurant or ordering takeout and not showing up. You also need to recycle. Make sure that you sort the garbage correctly, and if you don't, you can lose points. You definitely don't want to be speeding in your car because you can lose points for that. And even cheating on online video games is something that can get you in trouble. Or how about this? Even your dog not being kept on a leash can make you lose points. Each province is introducing different aspects of what they're monitoring, but they're all doing it. And in the case of Xinjiang province in China, where the Uyghur population is being brutally persecuted, they're practically turning it into the Orwellian surveillance state of 1984. Now, how do you get points? If you get points taken away in China, how do you get points added? Well, one way to do that is to do nice things like donate blood. If you donate blood, you get extra points. Another thing you can do is you can buy my brand new book, No Religion Required, a memoir of faith, doubt, chocolate milk, and untimely death. That will get you a lot of points. Um, for my Chinese friends, Wu Shi Zhong Xiao Xinyang, Hu Yu Xinyang Hui, Yi Chao Hulin Mung Hong, Gu Chao De Sewa. That's the name of my book in uh, Mandarin. Uh, I speak better Cantonese, actually, so um, my Mandarin is not that good. But anyway, there are billions of people in China laughing out loud right now, and they are getting their credit scores lowered for listening to this podcast. So uh, let me ask you this question. Would you like to live in a world like that? What if there was no more crime in your city or country? What if you never had to worry about being robbed? or mugged when you go out. It was never dangerous at nighttime. You never have to worry about your children being abducted. What if you could be more free of sickness and disease and viruses? What if driving became much safer and there were no longer really car accidents? And what if people just in general in your country followed the rules and it made your town or city just much more peaceful, would it be worth it to you? Is it worth the trade-off to live in that kind of society? Ask the people in Singapore because they've been living in it for quite a while. 
Now, Google and Facebook are part of this surveillance capitalism empire that is growing. And these are the two companies that are leading the way. And what they have learned about collecting and manipulating data now helps countries like Russia, China, and many others monitor and control their citizens. But in the rest of our countries, they are just busy collecting information on us so they can sell it to people. It's done in a tricky way. They start by having all these user conditions when you join that are so long that people don't read them and they're so complicated that you don't even understand what they're saying, but you basically sign away all your rights for your pictures and everything else. Then they make their products addictive. And then they make themes, things seem harmless, things that are fun, but rich are really just collecting your data. For example, many people played the game Pokemon Go a few years ago where they would get online and get instructions in this game and drive around doing these little missions, jumping in their cars to fight Pokemons, and they would go from place to place. And many people enjoyed this and put it up on uh, YouTube and Facebook and having fun doing all this. Well, Pokemon Go was actually one big data mining exercise masquerading as a fun game. It was run by Google and companies like McDonald's and Starbucks paid money to get those players playing the game to go to their businesses. So maybe there was a mission at a Starbucks or at a McDonald's. And of course, people would spend money there. That's the way they mine your data. It is often in a very, very tricky way. Shoshana Zuboff of Harvard Business School, who has studied this extensively, says that six is about the time you need to do this voice thing that I was telling you about, six minutes. She has a lot of scary things in her very, very big, thick book that she has uh, released, which is also like her hair. She has a ton of hair. This woman just has a lot of hair. Um, she even says not just the six-minute thing, but she, she talks about how they can even measure the enthusiasm with which you type on your keys about something. That sounds crazy, but surveillance capitalism is something that has gotten very, very sophisticated. It wants to predict what you want all the time. It wants to know you intimately. And it's not about making your life better, although it can. It's about knowing what will get you to spend money. So if you are addicted to a particular candy and you're trying to stop eating so that you can lose weight, of course these programs are not going to help you. They're going to tempt you with ads that pop up, for instance. They will put things in front of you to entice you to be a consumer. They can even judge who you are by how you write things and how you use punctuation when you type. They can tell your sexual orientation and certainly your political orientation, all for the sake of consuming. So the surveillance state wants to know those inner thoughts, what books you're reading, what channel you're watching, um, what politics are to you, and 
many of these technologies reached a new level of, of, of sophistication uh, around the year 2008. That was the moment when things just absolutely accelerated and nobody really recognized it. Nobody knew it. Nobody uh, was, was paying attention and they didn't, they didn't know kind of this Frankenstein that was being created. Consequently, there were no real laws written anywhere in the world to protect you from this. And that's still pretty much the case today. Not only that, but this kind of technology that Google and Facebook uses is now showing up in other places like your car, in your apps on your phone, uh, in your refrigerator, basically any kind of smart product that has a microchip in there that is, uh, you know, helping you out, like Alexa, for instance. You do not have privacy rights if you're on Facebook. If you take them to court, you will lose. So what does all of this mean? What it means is the companies know everything about us, and we know nothing about them. What it means is that technology is not democratizing the world as much as we thought it would it's actually exacerbating the rich-wealth divide. We have more general knowledge about any subject under the sun. We can just Google whatever we want if we want to find out something quickly. But it's also a world where a very small group of people using technology has power over our social and political order. So if I want to find out who won the best picture at the Academy Awards in 1954, it just takes one little second. Something as obscure as that now literally is one or two seconds away uh, from you so that you can answer that obscure piece of trivia. By the way, it was the movie From Here to Eternity. Well, that seems like power, doesn't it? Seems like we possess the knowledge, doesn't it? I can... I can uh, look up information on whatever I want and get it right away. Don't, don't I have power now because of this internet revolution? Well, what we're finding out is that no. The question is who has power over our social and political order and is there any transparency for those people? And the answer increasingly all around the world, whether it is an authoritarian state or a democracy, is no, we do not have insight into what is going on and who is manipulating what. The post-corona world is going to give every country the opportunity to grow their surveillance state and take away privacy. At some point, people in democracies are going to have to rise up and demand a far more transparent system. But for now, you should know, I paid a company to figure out what people are listening to this podcast and which ones have not bought my new book and they will be severely punished. And now it's time for a word from our sponsor. Are you looking for food delivery? Are you craving pizza? Why not try Roadkill Pizza? Roadkill Pizza brings you only the freshest ingredients from the highways of Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, and the Florida Panhandle. Try our new Supreme with squirrel meat and pepperoni. 
or get two medium pan possum special, also available in Cajun style. Why risk going out to the road yourself? Have Roadkill's road specialists and pizza makers do the hard work for you. They use only the freshest ingredients off of the highways, bake it immediately, and drive it on that same highway to your home. Think organic. Think Roadkill Pizza. Call now and get a 10% discount on any large Roadkill Pizza if you mention Get Your World On. Is the USA in unstoppable decline? Well, Wade Davis, an anthropologist at the University of British Columbia, wrote an article in Rolling Stone that has gotten a lot of traction, and uh, it is called The Unraveling of America. You know, America's obsession with individual rights and liberty at the expense of community has been a key point of weakness for the United States. And that's one of the things that uh, Wade Davis is looking at in this article. Uh, He points out that the top 1% of Americans control $30 trillion of assets, while the bottom 50% of Americans are in debt. And... uh, He brings up in the article the way that the United States actually had to depend on China to get relief supplies when COVID-19 broke out. Instead of being the country that was helping other countries that are experiencing a disaster, other countries, including Russia, had to send airplanes full of supplies to the United States as if it was some underdeveloped nation. He also brings up the collapse of Portugal and Spain and Holland, France and Britain, all these empires that were supposed to last forever and didn't. He mentions that the U.S. troops has 150, is, is, are located, sorry, are located in 150 countries. By the way, my microphone is popping a lot on this episode. Um, you know... When you are someone that is held hostage by aliens and they give you 103-year-old equipment to do a podcast, you know, don't expect it to be like NPR or something. So if you're going to be an elitist snob about it, you know, buzz off. Uh, Okay, so he's making the point that, you know, the United States is overextended. It's, it's, It's in 150 countries. And that the United States has been in some kind of war or conflict almost every year of its existence. Guess how many years the United States has not been in a war or some kind of battle or military skirmish? 16. The United States has had 16 peaceful years. The average American father spends 20 minutes a day with their child. Only 6% of grandchildren live with their grandparents, which is actually, you know, very unusual because in many cultures around the world, in many countries, uh, families still live together under one roof or in one compound. And that does tend to be a very healthy thing for children and families, the familial living situation. 
And then this statistic he brings up, two-thirds of all antidepressant drugs are consumed by Americans. Two-thirds of all antidepressant drugs in the world are consumed by Americans, and opioids are the leading cause of death for Americans under 15. He's trying to point out that the United States has, has, has gotten to a point of, of selfishness uh, of which there's no return, that it's the very beginning of the end of the country, that from here on out, uh, what held us once together is no longer going to hold us together. Uh, he says, and this is absolutely true, he points out that the U.S., when it was at its most upwardly mobile, when it had the most people entering the middle class, when the economy was booming and the United States truly became the indisputed world power and economic world power, which was in the 50s through about 1971, the marginal tax rates for the wealthy were 90%. That is absolutely true. The more the U.S. taxed the wealthy, the wealthier the country became overall, and the more a middle class emerged. Um, I know for a fact from having read Last Train to Memphis, the wonderful autobiography of Elvis Presley, that he was paying about 91%, 92% taxes when he was at the height of his fame. And he was happy to do it. Back then, Americans like Elvis, who were wealthy, they thought that was their duty to their country, that there was nothing wrong with that. In fact, he was asked about it, and he's like, well, what else would I do? Of course, that's how you repay your country for what it's given you. And then he went off and joined the army. That was the mentality of Americans at that time. Now, back then, it's not that there weren't rich people. There certainly were. CEO salaries were about 20 times higher than middle management. That is a lot, wouldn't you agree? Well, today, CEO salaries are 400 times greater than middle management. There are three individual Americans now that have more than uh, 160 million Americans. 20% of American households are completely broke. And more Americans are now away, are two paychecks away from bankruptcy than ever before. Now, here is where I think he cuts to the heart of his uh, argument. He says, the American cult of the individual denies not just community, but the very idea of society. No one owes anything to anyone. All must be prepared to fight for everything. Education, shelter, food, medical care. What every prosperous and successful democracy deems to be fundamental rights, universal health care, equal access to quality public education, a social safety net for the weak, elderly, and infirmed, America dismisses as socialist indulgences as if so many signs of weakness. How can the rest of the world expect America to lead on global threats, climate change, the extinction crisis, pandemics, when the country no longer has a sense of benign purpose or collective well-being, even within its own national community? Well, he is right about that. 
he is right that the U.S. has reached a level of individualism that is extreme by even American individualistic standards. However, I do have a few responses for this, and I think he's wrong. I do not think this is the end of American power, influence, or dominance. The USA goes through a period of reinvention about every 75 years, and what emerges is a country that is still individualistic and democratic overall, but very, very different in its politics, its culture, and its sense of community. The period leading up to the American Revolution was one of chaos. So were the years leading up to the Civil War and the years leading up to World War II. And each time there was volatility in Congress. People hated the government. There were incredible wealth imbalances. There were culture wars and tensions between whether government would expand its influence to deal with new problems or whether it would get increasingly smaller and move toward a greater individualism. But the United States in the 1780s looked very different from the USA in the 1880s, which was completely unrecognizable to Americans in the 1930s. 10 or 15 years from now, the greedy, non-communal, zero safety net uh, America of today will be a distant memory. We will marvel that Wall Street was unregulated, that tech companies were not broken up and had had monopolies. We'll, we'll be amazed that healthcare was not affordable, uh, that you could go broke if your child broke their arm at school and you called an ambulance. They'll be amazed that education was limited and was not very good in many places. And what will emerge is a country that's more unified and has less of a divide between the rich and the poor. The generations that created this politicized environment of today will literally be dead. They won't be on the stage anymore. They won't be in political power. They won't have influence over media. They won't be the wealthy barons that can buy media and politics. The next few generations of Americans will have a whole different set of expectations and they will reset the country like has always happened in the past. Now, unfortunately, for all of you little American aardvarks, that's about 10 to 15 years away. We are now about to hit peak American dysfunction. We are only halfway through this transition. But he doesn't think the U.S. will ever recover. Well, I do. And one of the reasons is that at the last turn of the century, the country that was predicted to be the new world power turned out not to be. In the year 2000, everyone would have predicted the new world power will be China. Well, back in 1900, everyone predicted the world power for the 20th century would be France. And that is something that always happens. People get that wrong at the beginning of the century. China has an aging population. It has massive debt. It has a great divide between rich and poor. It has an authoritarian government and is quickly losing the trust of Africa, Europe, and elsewhere as they become more hostile, as they expand their military into the Pacific, and as they put countries in debt by giving them uh, these loans and then expecting them to pay back, or they take control of their economies. Meanwhile, Russia's population is just too small and older. It is still not making products that the world wants to buy. And it suffers from a massive brain drain. 
This military is not as strong as Putin would like us to think, and they mainly contract out soldiers. What about the EU? Can the EU emerge? Well, the EU may survive, but it doesn't have the DNA or the unity to be the world leader. We're definitely headed toward a multipolar world. We're not going to be in a dominated, American-dominated world any longer. But if there is one country that is going to stand out among the others, it is probably going to be the United States. There's no other country that is close to having the amount of assets, the research capabilities, the military strength, or the educational capacity as the United States. As long as that's the case, the U.S., has the platform to innovate, reinvent itself, and remain the predominant nation in the world. But it's probably going to spend the next 10 years wasting a lot of that time. But it will eventually reinvent its social contract, the way it deals with technology, its educational system, its banking system, and then I think it will be back until about 75 years from now when we go through it all again. As I wrote in my fourth book, In God We Trust, the USA is kind of an unusual country as far as countries are concerned because almost all of its problems are completely self-inflicted as opposed to having these inherent limitations. Uh, Russia, for instance, is mostly located in the Arctic and subarctic. That's not really a a great place to be located if you want to be the world's dominating uh, economic global superpower. China has five-eighths of its land as is, is, is non-arable, useless for farming, and only has two really major rivers. That's not exactly super great either for having a very strong, healthy, sustainable economy over the long haul that is the world's most dominant one. So the United States is like the spoiled rich kid that manages to somehow end up going bankrupt. That is what the United States is. It has all of the advantages. It got the silver spoon, but it somehow manages a way to find itself going off the road and into the ditch. Most of its problems, when they happen, should never happen. And that's where the professor from UBC is right. American individualism has given it a fighting spirit, but American individualism is its greatest weakness. I have a new book out entitled No Religion Required, a memoir of faith, doubt, chocolate milk, and untimely death. It's autobiographical. Uh, well, not really. It's actually a memoir. It's, it's aspects from my life. And it's about the pursuit of my childhood dream to become a missionary, travel all over the world, and help lepers in rural China. It's all about the crazy twists and turns that happened to me on this journey I've been on. I hope the book is really very funny. I tried to make it funny and entertaining so that people don't get bored with their uh, little uh, tiny short attention spans. But you know what? It's also about a very serious subject. It's about the dark side of religion. And in the book, I look at Buddhism, Taoism, Judaism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, and other tribal religions. And I ask the question, 
why do we still have religion? Why have human beings uh, let this thing develop? When did it come about? Is it irrelevant in our modern world? And as you go through the book, you learn about how religions emerged in human history. And and I'm even very um, open and fair and discuss the very good arguments put forth by atheists and agnostics about uh, the dark sides of religion. This excerpt I'm going to read is about my mother, who was a very spiritual person, a committed Christian, a healthcare worker, and who didn't fit the stereotype of a traditional Christian. She delivered over 200 babies in Africa. She worked with AIDS patients at the beginning of the AIDS pandemic. And she was a lot like Mother Teresa, actually, except that she had a very naughty and mischievous streak. This particular section that I'm going to be reading is entitled A Christian Sarah Silverman. My mother was irreverent and always borderline politically incorrect. I'm glad I'm not like that. She was a very funny woman. She was like Mother Teresa meets Sarah Silverman. When she was not secretly taking food to single moms, working with AIDS patients, or adopting trees in the forest, she was making inappropriate jokes, being irreverent, and straddling the border between entertaining people and being sacrilegious. The truth is, is that I'm sure that much of my sense of humor and sensibility comes from my mother, Jean. Anyone that truly knows me well knows this is how I talk, too. But unless they knew Jean, they probably don't know the source. I think she was my hero, and at an early age, I imitated everything about her, except for the dressing as a woman part. That came later. Jean loved to pull practical jokes on all of us. She would throw water on my sister from our balcony while she was getting a suntan. She would make jokes about my acne when my friends would come over, and I would tease her about her age. She once planted a Playboy magazine in the carry-on luggage of a traveling evangelist friend so that it would fall out when he was on the plane with his wife and cause a scandal. It worked. Jean passed notes in church, and she was like a teenager. She would call people on the telephone, putting on a fake Russian accent, and claim to be the Soviet embassy. When she learned that one of her friends had a collection of ceramic cows, Jean showed up at her birthday party with a real live calf. She had convinced a local farmer to let her borrow the animal just to pull the practical joke. My mother also dressed up as a clown and shared the stage with the governor of Oregon. She stood behind him, making faces at him behind his back during the whole speech. At the dinner table, she would make jokes about my mild-mannered dad having a venereal disease. This was normal stuff in my home. She loved to tease us. Dad bore the brunt of the jokes, but she also really loved to mess with me. She had an ironic sense of humor before irony became cool in the 1980s. When I was in high school at my beloved Tigard High, when I was most conscious of being cool, I would accompany her to the grocery store and we would inevitably end up going down different aisles and getting separated. In such a public place, it was a perfect time for her to embarrass me. Sweet pussy willow, 
she would cry out at the top of her voice, where are you? Panic would set in. I recognized that voice and I wondered how many people from my high school might be in the supermarket. I would go running at full speed to find her. Sweet pussy, where are you? Pussy willow. Mom, I would say in an extremely stern whisper, will you be quiet? You're embarrassing me. I'm here now. Stop calling for me. She would play dumb with a little gleam in her eye. Chicken of the sea, where are you? If movies were good, we would go to them, and it didn't matter if they were R-rated. I got to see my favorite movie of all time, Excalibur, four times when I was in fifth grade. It was rated R, it had violence, a rape scene, and witchcraft. By the way, all of those things and much worse are in the Bible. Parents were definitely less protective in the 1980s than they are now. And back then, even PG movies often had bad language, nudity, and violence before PG-13 was introduced. But I also think that my parents really valued good art and good stories and trusted us kids to be sophisticated enough to handle it. I'm so glad they did that. Now, that didn't mean that she was a fan of the nude scenes. She seemed to like to talk loudly in the movie theaters, to be the person that annoyed everyone. As a teenager in the movie theater with my mother, I wondered, is she just clueless? Does she not know how loud she is talking? But as an adult, I realized it was all part of her own little in-joke, tormenting her kids. We went to see the Robin Williams movie, Moscow on the Hudson, about a Russian who defects to the United States. We were all extremely fascinated by the Soviet Union, and my sister was a Soviet studies major who would end up studying in Moscow and Leningrad a year later. We always went to movies that were about global issues or world history, movies like Gandhi or The Killing Fields. There was one particularly long nude scene in Moscow on the Hudson, and Mom made sure to express her displeasure and embarrass us at the same time in front of the whole audience at the cinema. As Robin Williams and Maria Conchita Alonso got en flagrant, or in flagranti as the French would say, in a bathtub practicing all forms of sexual congress, my mom loudly said, Oh, here we go. The sound of shh came from the audience. She didn't care. They have to throw in a nude scene, she said with disgust. Mom, be quiet, I would say, dying of humiliation. Oh, look, they have to show us her boobies, she would say loudly. Mom, my sister and I wanted to crawl into a hole and die. Now he has to play with her nipples. Here's the boob shot. Of course they have to show boobs. What's the big deal about boobs? They all look the same. If you want to see boobs, come with me to the nursing home. I'll show you all the boobs you want. Mom, shh. I was ready to commit Harry Carey. This is how they get people to show up. Throw in a nude scene. Here we go. The crowd stirred some more. My face turned an appalling shade of red. It was impossible to be a teenager and enjoy a nude scene with your mom embarrassing you in front of a couple of hundred strangers. I hope you enjoyed that excerpt. And if you did, I hope you will order the book or the Kindle version 
And after you read it, drop me a line at getyourworldon.com. Let me know what you thought of the book. Well, that's it for today's show. Join us next time for more in-depth news analysis from the Starship Chocolate Love. If you like the show, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Get Your World On. If you want to send in a comment, tell me how awesome I am, share your darkest secrets so I can make it public, or you just want to join the conversation, go to GetYourWorldOn.com. You can also subscribe there for easy access to the next episodes. Last, don't forget to make a little donation so my days of indentured servitude can finally end. See you next time. In the meantime, get your world on and get the ignorance out. Peace, love, and chocolate.